This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today is the third installment of the spooky edition of the pod. And we are talking about the 2014 film, It follows. Um, Now I wanted to talk about this movie because this is one of my favorite indie horror movies that I've ever seen. Um, I watched it when it had like just first come out. When it was like a couple years out, I watched it alone in my dorm room in college and it absolutely scared the bejesus out of me. (laughs) It was it was so good. It was so scary, so unsettling. Um, I remember like not being able to sleep well after watching it in my dorm room, um, and so I figured this would be a great candidate for talking about on the pod. Um, and in conjunction with talking about the movie, I wanted to go through this article I found about the neurobiology of horror, just kind of tie it back to you know psychology and what we do here at the pod. To go through this article to talk about like sort of what are the brain and body mechanisms that contribute to feelings of fear or disgust that are kind of coordinated to help us enjoy horror movies more and what are some of the things that horror movies capitalize on to increase our sense of fear which increases our sense of enjoyment of horror films. So I'm going to talk about the film and then talk about this article and we can kind of see how um, this film does a good job of implementing some of those recommendations from the article. But so to start off plot of it follows this is spoilers if you haven't seen it it is seven years old now (laughs) um but i'm going to kind of quickly go through the plot so we follow we have our main character jamie um she's a college student uh, like a college freshman in this like um small town in michigan i mean it's kind of set on the edge of detroit like out in the suburbs um we see her with her new boyfriend hugh who um, is shown to be a little paranoid about something, and then eventually we see that Hugh and Jamie have sex in his car. Um, He knocks her out with chloroform, and she wakes up tied to a wheelchair. Hugh explains that she will be pursued by an entity that only they can see, and which can take the appearance of any person. If it catches Jamie, it will kill her and pursue the previous person to have passed on, Hugh. So this is setting up that it's passed on through sex, and... Um, basically insinuating there's like a chain of people that have had sex with each other and the the entity will continue following, right? It follows, uh, following on down the chain. Um, While she's tied to the chair, they see this naked woman walking toward them. Hugh lets it get pretty close so that she can see it's real, and then he drops her off in front of her house in her underwear with her arms tied, and he flees. She reports it to the police, finds out that he was using a fake identity and is gone, um, and there's no evidence of the snake-naked woman. Shortly after that, Jamie begins to see someone following her that no one else can see at her college. Um, Her friends and sister try to help her out, but they can't see the entity. So the movie does a really good job of switching up perspectives, so sometimes you see the scene from Jamie's perspective, and sometimes you see it from the friend's. And when it's from the friend's perspective, there's nothing there. It's just Jamie freaking out. Each time that Jamie sees the entity, it takes on different shapes. So sometimes she sees it as like a very tall man or an old woman. Sometimes it takes on the form of people she knows or, or um, people that like are connected to other people within the chain. Um, she and her friends go to track down Hugh, whose real name is Jeff, and he gives them more information about how it works, and basically his solution is, well, she should just try to pass it on as soon as possible um, so that the chain can get longer and it gets away from her. After she tries, after the being follows them again, Jamie tries to flee. She ends up in the hospital where her neighbor, who's kind of joined this attempt to save her, has sex with her to take the entity's attention off of Jamie. It is then implied that this neighbor potentially has sex with somebody else immediately after, um, because he basically tells her like he never he's never seen it, um, but we do then later see the entity um, killing that neighbor in a very like grotesque um, way. After the entity has killed off Greg, the neighbor, 
uh, Jamie and her friends come up with this plan to kill the entity in a swimming pool. It comes to this like very tense standoff where they're trying to they were trying to trap it in the swimming pool and electrocute it, but it's smarter than them, <laughs> and uh, ends up throwing the electrical devices into the pool where Jamie is, and they uh, one of Jamie's friends is able to shoot it in the head uh, where it falls into the pool and seemingly drowns. The movie ends with several scenes of Jamie and her friends kind of wrapping up loose ends. We realize that when Jamie saw the entity in the pool, it was her deceased father. Um, She has sex with one of the friends in the group, Paul. Uh, And then there's a scene that implies that Paul is looking for sex workers to pass the entity onto as he's seen driving past them. And then the final shot is Jamie and Paul holding hands, walking down the street. um, And in the distance, we see a figure walking behind them. Um, and that's kind of the end. So it's a really ambiguous end. We don't really realize, we don't, the film doesn't tell us if it was the creature following them, if it was just somebody walking on the street. And it's impossible to tell because the, when the, if the characters aren't aware of something walking toward them, then we as the audience aren't aware either. So that's overall the plot of It Follows. It's really good. <laughs> it's really intense. And the interesting thing about the like the monster in this movie is that it's just people, right? It's just regular people who keep walking. Um, and throughout the movie, you realize that nobody really knows the rules for the entity. Like, can it walk on water? You know, like, so if you were to fly overseas, would it stop the entity? Um, you know, how fast is it able to walk? We only ever see it, like, slowly, walking after the characters in the movie, but that's just when they see it, you know, we don't know if it's able to walk really fast when they're very far away, because there are certain scenes in the movie where they drive really far out of town and then the entity shows up almost immediately. Um, The film also doesn't tell you what year it is, like we don't know what time period it is, Um, and in fact the only piece of technology that we see is one of the friends has a Kindle, but it's shaped like a clamshell. Like, it's not a real <laughs> product. It kind of looks like a like a compact, um, but it's a Kindle, and she's, like, constantly reading off of it. But no one else has phones. Um, it looks, like, fairly modern, just because, like, she goes to school. And, like, she the school she's in, it seems like a more modern building, but it's, like, she doesn't have any modern um, technology. Like, the TVs are old. Some of the cars are modern. Some of them are not. Um... It's really all over the place. So, and, and that that all contributes to this kind of environment of the movie being very unsettling, right? We don't know where we are in time. We don't know what the rules are, like how we can avoid the monster. It just follows. And, and that's why I think the title is also so good, because it just sums up what the movie is. It's, it follows you, and there's no way to stop it. I mean, they've tried to shoot it in the head, they, you know, they tried to drown it. It's seen, like, falling off of... It's seen, like, up on roofs and climbing buildings and all these things, and it never seems to get harmed. Um, and we also don't know what it really looks like because it's always taking on the form of somebody else. And there are times where it takes on the form of, like I said, one of her friends or her father. Um, it even takes on the form of the, the neighbor she has sex with, it takes on his form as it's going into his house to capture him. And it's interesting because there is, right before the neighbor is killed, before Greg is killed, there's a scene where Jamie has run over to his house to confront the figure and to warn Greg, and the figure like looks at her, acknowledges her, but because it's not her turn, right, she's second on the list at this point, it completely ignores her. So there's also this, um, it, it is an entity where we don't understand the rules, but it does adhere to one very strict rule, that it only follows the person who is first on the list. And the movie doesn't mess around with, like, building any lore. We have no idea where it started. We have no idea who the first person is. We don't know how many people... We don't know how many people are involved. The movie doesn't explain any of it. And in fact, the movie doesn't explain a lot of the choices that some of the characters are made, right? Like, we're made to assume 
that Greg passed on the figure to someone he met right after having sex with Jamie, but there's no confirmation of that, right? We, we are given a scene where it seems like Paul is attempting to pass it on to sex workers, but that's never confirmed. Um, and it really is this ambiguity, and almost the film's like nonchalance of like, we're not going to explain this to you, that kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat and, and keeps you engaged. Um, now, interestingly enough, this was, uh, I pulled this actually from the Wikipedia <laughs> page about the movie, but a lot of people have talked about this this movie as um, sort of an allegory for like sex or sexually transmitted diseases, right? Because the way that you pass on this figure is by having sex with somebody and, you know, it's it comes after you until you die, almost like a very aggressive sexually transmitted illness. Um, however, the filmmaker rejects that idea and says 100% no, the monster is not an allegory for like consequences of sex. Um, and he uh, actually based the film off of a dream he had that was very similar of like just a, a figure following him like relentlessly. And so that's why the film has a lot of like pieces kind of missing, there's like logic not filled in, it's supposed to simulate this dream-like feeling, you know, when you're in the dream everything makes sense, but once you step out of the dream it may not make sense. And it, and he just wanted to emulate this feeling of like, you're being followed. So to him, the creature, the monster, the entity, whatever, represents the feeling of being followed that he had in his dream, and it, it's not an allegory for anything. Um, and he even quoted saying that the role that sex plays in the movie or sex or love plays in the movie is that, you know, it there is a danger to it where you open yourself up to danger, um, but it's also you can't get through this situation without opening yourself up to danger. And that, you know, she she like Jamie we see Jamie like seeking solace in relationships with people, which sometimes ends up in her having sex. Um, but that those are, that's, that's similar to like how sex and love is in real life, right? That there is a danger to opening yourself up to other people, um, or to sex. And we don't just avoid those things because there could be danger to them. They're, they're a part of life and they're a part of life that makes life worth living. So I thought that was a really interesting take because, uh, I do remember the first time I watched it kind of wrestling with that of it. It felt like, um, you know, it almost felt like it played into that trope of like sacrificing the virgin in horror movies, right? That you know, once well, not, not sacrificing the virgin, but in like some of the classic horror movies, it's the characters who it's the especially the teenagers who are having sex that are the first killed by the monster, um, and that those who are the most virginal, um are often saved. And in fact, if you've ever seen The Cabin in the Woods, this plays on that trope really well. And I think It Follows is not... Like, the filmmaker may have been aware of the, you know, this trope and and this messaging, but he's not playing into it. Um, And in fact, is trying to, like... Although the the plot of the film revolves around sex, um, he's kind of trying to play it off. I don't know if that was such a (laughs) well-thought-out... Um, point that I'm making, but it just, you know, at first glance, this movie, you could just very much read it as like a very old school, old fashioned way of, of thinking about sex and that once you have sex, there are consequences. Um, but I think if you are able to watch the movie and kind of absorb everything about it, you'll see that that's not the true message. And I can see that it really is it really is more of like an artistic film where it is all about like the aesthetic and the feeling, um, that the, like the feeling of being followed and the fear of being like relentlessly followed by something that you can't stop, which I think plays into some other fears. So that's, that's kind of, I think kind of like the cautioning I would give when approaching this film is it does seem like <laughs> it's a little bit of like an after school special on the surface. Um, but, but it really isn't. And the, and the film the film itself doesn't pass on any judgment to any of the characters for how they handle dealing with the entity. Um, now we as the audience may, right, like, I think it's kind of, uh, a bad idea that Hugh or Jeff chloroforms her in the beginning, because that's a little creepy. 
and probably not the best way to go about things. But then, you know, it's like, is the best thing to do to tell people when you have sex with them that this entity is coming after you? <laughs> you know, like, there, there really is no, like, ethical way to handle this because if if you decide, okay, well, I won't have sex with anyone else um, so that it won't, ha- it won't harm anyone else, well, once it kills you, it's going to harm the person that you had sex with. So there really is no way to, like, mitigate the harm of this creature, and the film doesn't pass any judgments on people for how they decide to handle that. So I also think that was interesting, because it very easily could have had, like, other characters in the film saying that, like, Jamie is a bad person for how she handles it, or, um, you know, like, pushing back on her, some of her choices, or, or even saying that she's a bad person for having sex in the first place, and, you know, getting this passed on to her. Um, but it doesn't. And her friends, although it's hard for them to believe it at first, they do really rally around her. And I, I really like that element, too, of how the, you know, her, her friends kind of step in. Um, because this is kind of a wild story to hear from your friend. And especially because the people who have not, who are not in the chain can't see the entity, there's really, it's hard to prove that this is actually happening. Um, now, as we go through, as you get through the movie and the encounters with the intent, entity become more and more intense, um, it, it we do see that it does have an impact on the physical world and it can break windows, um, it can open doors, it can grab the people that it's following. And so within those instances, her friends do get more information that, oh, something is happening because this like, you know, window just smashed and there's nothing there. Uh, or, you know, this door flew open and there's no one there. Um, so that also, I think, is a really interesting element, and I, and I think it's so, part of what made it so unique is that, and I think kind of ties into this, like, a feeling of dream logic, right, is her friends just kind of buy in, and are like, we got you, you know, we support you, whatever's happening, we're gonna help you stop this thing. Um, there is a, I'm gonna link it on the website, but there is a, a, a video on YouTube of all the instances of the... <laughs> the creature (laughs) coming after people if you don't want to watch the whole movie but you just want to see um like what it can look like because they they, there are some really interesting scenes where the creature is like pursuing Jamie for quite a while and we see it change forms multiple times um so like when it's when the you know director switches shots and we see Jamie from a different angle the creature or the entity is like a different person um which I think is really cool and, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, right? Because then it's like you can have these longer shots and you don't have to have one actor kind of repositioning themselves very quickly. You can just have multiple actors coming out of different spots. Um, but from like a psychological perspective, right, having the entity change that quickly um, keeps you really off balanced. And uh, in the scene in particular that I'm thinking of, the first time she sees it, it looks like her friend. Um, Then immediately changes to, like, a little boy, and then changes to another young woman. And so all of that happens within the span of, you know, like, two minutes. Um, And that's really, like, off-putting to be expecting, you know, this one thing to be coming after me, and then I turn a corner and it's something else coming after me. But every time, no matter what it looks like, it is just relentlessly at an even pace with no emotion walking towards you. And I think that's just really scary. <laughs> um, like, regardless of, uh, like, if it could happen or not, you know, whatever. Like, it's just really scary. Um, and that, again, that's another thing that I really liked about this movie. It was just so unique. Um, I, I can't think of another film, especially a horror film, that, that does, that uses the same type of like, psychological horror. So, that's the movie. It is, it's quite short. Um, you know, I, I really did explain most of the plot, uh, which I do hope that you will watch it for yourself if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but I do want to spend some time talking about this article from, uh, Dr. Lori Numenema. Uh, and this comes out of a lab in Finland that does, um, like, it does. They do a lot of neuroscience stuff. So they're using like uh, molecular technology to study the brain. So this guy wrote this article about the psychology and neurobiology of horror movies. Um, so it's not um, published in an article in a journal, um, which typically 
like we've talked about before, going all the way back to conspiratorial, conspiratorial thinking, uh, we want to be careful about articles that aren't <laughs> peer-reviewed. Um, but this this isn't an uh, experiment. This guy was just kind of um, like gathering together. It's a lit review. Basically, he's gathering together literature and reporting on some of the stuff that has come out of his lab. He seems like a legit guy. This research seems he seems to be saying what's in line with the research in this area, but I did just for the sake of, you know, how we're kind of learning about research <laughs> throughout the episodes, just wanted to put it out there that this article is not necessarily peer-reviewed, um, but it also is not an experiment and is not, from from my reading of it, is not saying anything outside of uh, what has been ex- accepted in the peer-reviewed community. So, we're taking everything with a grain of salt, uh, just because it does have those aspects, but uh, nevertheless, there's there's important stuff for us to learn in here. So, we're going to talk about the neurobiological and psycholo- psychological aspects of fear. So, when we say neurobiological, we're talking about like components, physical components of the brain uh, working together, right? So, sometimes when we talk about psychological stuff, we aren't necessarily talking about like physical structures. We're talking about concepts, right? Like anxiety, depression fear, right? Those are psychological concepts that you can't necessarily measure. However, there are neurobiological processes that contribute to those psychological aspects, and we do know where they are in the brain and how the physical structures play a role. Um, So in this article, I really cannot say his last name, (laughs) Numenema, Numenema, states that fears of injury and illness, as well as those pertaining to termination of social relationships, are the most common ones in the general population. So getting, being afraid that you're going to get hurt, being afraid that you're going to get sick, um, or anything happening that could ruin your relationship with your social circle are going to rate as the top fears uh, in the general population. So he lays that out to say, like, those are kind of the things that you want to have in horror movies, because everyone can relate to those fears. So in It Follows, uh, we do have like fears of injury, right? Because this creature is coming after you and and will hurt you, which I guess kind of really is the fear of death, (laughs) but through bodily injury. Um, And there is this element of like termination of social relationships, right? Because like Hugh in the beginning, when after he has sex with Jamie, he ends that relationship, he's gone. Um, So there is, the, the movie does play, play around with these, these concepts um, and how relation fear and social relationships um, work together. Um, he also talks about how the soundscape is critical to horror, as auditory information is automatically and unconsciously processed, even while focusing on the visuals. So, when you are watching a movie and you hear the soundtrack, you may not be conscious that you're hearing a sound, Uh, But your brain is still processing that auditory information and responding to it. So if there's, you know, um, sound cues that signal danger, your brain is responding as if there is danger, uh, even if your conscious brain isn't aware of it. And we're going to break down how that works uh, in a little bit. Uh, Numenema also breaks down um, where horror movies are the most appealing. So interestingly enough, horror movies are the most appealing um, among males, and among people who have high personality factors of sensation-seeking and aggression. Um, He also talks about that horror movies don't work as well for older people. So as you get older, your emotional stability becomes more stable. (laughs) Your your emotional state um, and ability to recognize emotions kind of increase and stabilize. So as you get older, you become less afraid of horror movies just because you're kind of operating from a more stable base. Whereas younger people are more likely to be like emotionally labile, right? Like kind of up and down, more sensitive to changes in emotion, which horror movies are playing off of emotions, right? Fear, anxiety, stress, those are all emotional states. So basically as you get older, you're harder to scare, um, which I think this is my opinion, that 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 might not necessarily reduce your enjoyment of horror movies, but might be why some people get into horror a little bit older, because they're they're not as scared of it. Um, Although Numenema talks about how the scaring is (laughs) what draws people in. Um, So he lists three factors for why people like horror movies. Uh, Universal human curiosity 
towards morbid and threatening subjects, mixing of fear and excitement in the brain, and capability to learn about emotionality and dangerous situations safely in the context of movies. So, reason number one why we like horror movies is we're always curious about things, even when they're scary, right? This is the... If you've ever heard somebody say, it's like a, it's like a train wreck, I just couldn't look away, though. This is that universal human curiosity. This is why everyone comes to a complete and total stop on the freeway when they see a police officer has pulled someone over, right? Because we're curious, even though it's something that could be dangerous um, or could be unpleasant to see, we, we want to see it. We're pulled to it. So there's that curiosity that pulls us toward watching horror movies. Uh, the second factor is mixing fear and excitement. So when you watch a horror movie, you are expecting to be afraid. <laughs> Um, but, and, and we'll lay this out, this lays it out more in the article later, it also increases just kind of overall arousal and excitement. And so mixing that fear and that excitement, um, is enticing. It kind of pulls you in, keeps you more engaged because you don't know what you're going to feel next. Are you going to feel afraid next? Are you going to feel excited? Um, is it going to be a peaceful moment or not? You know, it's keeping you on your edge, which is keeping your attention on the movie. Uh, and then the last one is he talks about the capability to learn about emotionality and dangerous situations. So I'm safely in the context of the movie theater or my own home watching this movie, and my brain is maybe figuring out how I could stay safe if, you know, a serial killer was coming after me. Now, in it, in it follows, it may not necessarily be that I'm rehearsing how to avoid an entity relentlessly bent on pursuing me to my death, <laughs> but um, you are, there is this like ability to learn about a dangerous situation, but I'm safe, right? I'm at home uh, watching this on my computer. It's not really happening to me. So those are kind of the three factors. So first he talks about uh, the psychological and neurobiological basis of fear. So here's a very complex process that um, is seen to be in place to meet or to ensure survival um, and can kind of hijack systems in the brain including cardiovascular, skeletomuscular, and endocrine along with your behavior and psychological processes to keep you safe. So basically when fear is activated in the brain it overrides things like your heart rate, your muscles, your um, levels of hormones, that's the endocrine, your actual behavior and the way that you're thinking. So when you, let's say the, the Latin, next time you feel afraid, <laughs> you're able to slow down time and observe all this, right? So um, for example, let's say I walk outside and there's a bear in my front yard. So my brain is going to go, uh-oh, <laughs> there's a bear. Bears uh, do not always equal survival, so we need to figure out a way to get around this challenge. So when the fear process is activated, things like my muscles might tense to get me ready to run uh, or to fight. <laughs> my heart rate might increase to make sure that there's enough blood pumping to my extremities to make sure that I can run, and I might get flooded with adrenaline, right, from my hormonal, my endocrine system. I'm flooded with adrenaline so that, you know, no matter what else is going on, my body's ready. Additionally, I may make the choice to open the door and get back inside before even being aware that I've made that choice because my brain has told me, uh, has kind of sent out the message, this is what we need to do. And um, now all of a sudden, all of my attention is going to be on this bear and pathways around it, no matter what else is going on in the environment. So there could be helicopters flying over, there could be people shouting, but if it's not relevant to the situation directly in front of me, my brain is going to filter out and attend only to the bear and is going to do its best to be searching my memory for the last time we encountered a bear. And this is all going to be happening not necessarily within my control, um, which and I think that's what makes fear so exciting is that we don't have control over it. It's just, you know, you could be sitting watching a scary movie and you're determined, it's not going to scare me, I know what's coming, but you feel that heart rate coming up, right? You feel that drop in your stomach when the the monster appears for the first time and it's uncontrollable, it's out of your control, it's just your brain reacting to the environment 
before you're aware of it. And it's fun. It's exciting. Uh, especially when you're safe and there's not actually a real bear in your front yard. <laughs> um, going along with this information about attention, fear potentiates your attention and we will automatically orient ourselves toward the potential threats. So like I said, it doesn't matter what else is going on, my attention is going toward this bear. Now, physiologically, right, I talked about how your heart rate might go up, you may feel tension in your muscles. Some people get nauseous when they're afraid because the body is shutting down digestion very quickly. Um, other like physiological feelings can happen that are very unpleasant. And Numenema says that it feels unpleasant because fear is trying to motivate us for survival, right? So uh, get out of this situation and you can feel better, right? We're making you feel sick right now because you shouldn't be in this situation. And once you get out of the situation, uh, will make you feel better. And the we is your brain <laughs> talking to you. Um, and so if you've ever had that feeling of like, uh, like let's say you almost got into a car crash, right? Like someone cuts you off on the freeway, you swerve out of the way, you get that burst of adrenaline, you've tensed, you know, there's the fear. And then you, maybe you pull over to kind of catch your bearings and you get this flood of relief of like, oh my gosh, we're okay, right? We didn't get into a car crash, like we didn't get hurt. Um, and that feeling of relief is almost like a reward from your brain of like, you did a good job getting to safety. And so in horror movies, this happens as well, where when the fear is over, when there's a break, the audience gets this feeling of relief. Now, the interesting thing about It Follows is you don't really get that relief. You don't get that break because the monster could be anywhere at any time could be any person in the background uh, and if you'll watch it you'll see that there are quite a few scenes where you see people in the background walking toward the main characters but it's never specified if that is the creature or just somebody walking so you don't get that relief because you're always kind of on edge of is, is the thing following us and so that contributes to the unsettling nature of the film so get not like a traditional horror movie where you're getting floods and relief floods and relief so all that to say, this is kind of the cycle of fear where you get really afraid uh, and then you get a break. And this is an, and the purpose of that is to keep us alive. So how does that work in the brain? So in the brain, if you're familiar with the tri, the three level um, model of the brain, we have the lizard brain, that's your very basic, brain stem, it does the functions like breathing in and out, keeping your heart pumping. Then you, on top of that you have monkey brain, um, which is in charge of a, a more involved survival techniques. So the lizard brain keeps your heart pumping, the monkey brain keeps your, like, keeps your vigilance up when you're in a dangerous situation. And then on top of that is the human brain, or also called the frontal cortex, which is only pretty much only found in humans. Um, and this does higher order thinking. This is where we do planning, executive functioning, all those fun words. So the fear system or the fear circuit is operating through all of those levels, right? So the midbrain is where the fear circuit starts. The midbrain houses something we call the amygdala, which is this little tiny brain structure that is responsible for kind of turning off or on the flow of I guess what you would call it brain goop. <laughs> I think Dan Siegel calls it brain goop. Um, it's, in, it's in control of kind of dumping, titrating the amount of chemicals in the brain that are going to facilitate the fear circuit. So the midbrain is doing this immediate stuff. So your amygdala and your midbrain come into play if you've ever put your hand on the stove and you've pulled your hand back before you've had the thought, ouch, that's hot. So your midbrain is yanking your hand back. Your prefrontal cortex or your frontal cortex is saying, ouch, that's hot. That is why my hand hurts. So the midbrain acts first. The frontal cortex processes it later. So when we're in, let's go back to the bear, right? Bear is in the, the yard. Uh, the second I see the, the bear, midbrain turns on, says, get back in the house, shut the door. Once I'm inside the door, the immediate threat is gone, my frontal cortex can kick back in and say, let's make a plan to get rid of this bear. Maybe it means I'm going to sneak out the backyard, 
uh, because there couldn't be any bears in the backyard. <laughs> There's only a bear in the front yard. Um, you know, maybe I'm gonna call animal control. You know, whatever I'm gonna do, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have time to plan and prevent um, harm from this threat with my frontal cortex. Um, however, if I were to open that front door again and the bear is still there, midbrain is going to kick back in and take control. So, and again, this is why we kind of lose control when fear is immediately um, activated because it's coming from this midbrain from the amygdala and um, our conscious brain may not even be aware of the stimulus yet, right? Like you're not even aware that the stove is hot. You just know that you've pulled your hand back. Now, again, this stuff is happening within like milliseconds of each other, so it feels simultaneous, but that is the process that's happening, that midbrain is getting activated and then frontal cortex is kicking in. Um, Numenema also talks about how this um, midbrain defense circuits um, will try to push you away from the situation while the higher level frontal cortex is trying to get you to make action, right? So in the bear situation, midbrain is like, get out, get out, whereas um, well, hopefully your higher level executive system isn't saying fight the bear, <laughs> but your higher, your, your frontal cortex may be like, well, you know, this is what we can do to get out of the situation, but we need to take action. Whereas midbrain is like defend, defend. And so Numenema also points out that actually a lot of horror video games exploit this, um, like descent between the midbrain and the frontal cortex. So if you've ever played like a survival horror game where, like you don't have a weapon, <laughs> right? And you know that in order to progress through the game, you're going to have to make it, you know, down the hallway, but you hear whatever is haunting you in the game is in the same hallway. So your midbrain is getting activated, even though this is a simulated environment, right? It's getting activated and saying, no, 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 that's dangerous. Don't go down the hallway. Uh, and is wanting you to pull back, whereas your frontal cortex is saying, we have to go, like, we have a plan we have to do to execute to win the game. So horror video games are really gonna um, play with this this um, dissonance. So we talked about fear in these different contexts in the real world, but why is fear so interesting or appealing during a horror movie? And so Nomenema lays out that this is actually um, an interaction of the midbrain or the survival circuits and the executive systems and long-term memory that reminds us that we're safe. So you're watching a horror movie, let's say you're watching Halloween, right? And Michael Myers is coming after Lee Curtis um, and midbrain goes, uh-oh, this is not a situation that we could survive. We should be afraid. Long-term memory and frontal cortex is kicking in saying, one, Michael Myers is on the TV screen or on the movie screen. Two, Michael Myers was not real. Three, we've seen every Halloween movie that has come out and we've never been hurt by Michael Myers. Therefore, we can conclude that we are safe. So you're you're getting this like activation of the amygdala, the midbrain um, that's being damped, uh, tamped down by the frontal cortex, which keeps you in your seat, <laughs> keeps you from fleeing, uh, and, and makes it an overall enjoyable experience because the end thought or the end process is we're safe, we're in a safe environment. Um, so Numenema makes several recommendations in this article about how um, people who make horror media could make it more scary. And so he suggests that to um, make movies more fear inducing, you want to minimize safety signals and immerse the viewers in the movie with things like first-person camera shots um, and ensure undivided attention to the movie events. So, meaning it's better to see a horror movie like in a theater in a, on a big screen uh, or having high-quality audio and visuals. So, uh, no, no <laughs> doesn't say this, but basically this is saying, like, don't be on your phone when you're watching a horror movie because it won't scare you. Or I guess if you don't want to be scared, look at your phone. <laughs> because as long as you're not uh, fully attended to what's going on in the movie, um, it's not going to be as scary. And it's going to be easier for your brain to kind of filter through and not have that um, automatic fear response. Uh, I did think it was also interesting that he, rec he uh, recommends first-person camera runs because that's kind of hinting at this, like, if the person watching the movie is taking on the role of being pursued or um, 
being threatened, uh, you know, you you have more like connection with it, and that might kind of uh, foster a stronger midbrain reaction. And in fact, in it follows, there are several times where um, when we see the creature coming toward Jamie, we are taking the first person role, right? Like we're kind of seeing her view of this creature walking toward us, which can intensify the fear of of this pursuit by this entity. Um, so if you're making anything horror related, try to do first person <laughs> when you can. Um, and lots of music, <laughs> good quality music. Um, okay, so the next section of the article just talks about how we can translate this all the science we learned into making movies. Now he does he does make this very interesting statement in the first paragraph where he says, consequently, particularly younger audiences are easier to scare with movies, which is also reflected in the restrictions prohibiting showing of potentially traumatic or overly graphic movies to younger audiences. Um, and I just thought this was a very nice kind of like scientific understanding of why we have like why movie ratings can be beneficial. And I know that there are opinions about censorship out there and and I'm not starting a censorship debate right now. <laughs> um but you know Numenema is saying well we have this this research that shows that younger people um have stronger emotional experiences, react emotionally to movies and are less likely to be able to regulate those emotional reactions which can make viewing content that an adult sees um, scarier than it would be for the adult. And this it, it, this is a little bit of a side tangent, but one of the criteria for um, diagnosing someone with PTSD is that uh, the traumatic event is perceived to be life-threatening. So for a younger person who maybe is unable to, and I'm not saying you're going to get PTSD from watching a horror movie. Like, I'm not, I mean, maybe you have, but I'm just saying, like, even in, in, in the way that we diagnose trauma-related disorders, there's this element of there has, there was, um, there's a, a, a perception of the bad thing that happened. And so for younger people, it is more likely that they'll perceive what they see on the screen as more bad um, than an older person. And so maybe there is something to keeping younger people from watching some types of media in an effort to protect them um, until they're older and able to regulate their emotions better. Just a side note, and I did like the Nomenema kind of, he's grounding it in the science, right? It's not just a feeling thing. Um, Okay, so one of the things that we need to do to make horror movies scary um, is understand that we have to, that the brain is constantly distinguishing the external world from the internal world and is performing numerous reality checks to assess whether our experience and perceptions stem from the external environment. So the brain is able to have a very rich internal world. The brain also needs to keep us aware that the internal world is separate from the external world. Um, and is going to be throughout the day performing reality checks to keep us aware of that fact. Um, Numenema states that an extreme breakdown of this ability um, may be what leads to hallucinations, right? So if you've ever experienced like an auditory visual hallucination, it is the experience of this internal thought um, being attributed to the external environment coming from outside of the mind. Um, so all the horror movies <laughs> or another horror media is not trying to stimulate or simulate the experience of hallucinating. It is trying to kind of use this tenuous connection between or tenuous border between the internal and external world to scare you. <laughs> so the games, games particularly are doing this where they're trying to build this environment, but movies are also trying to build an environment um, where we feel that we're in, in in the actual context of the movie. So, for example, in It Follows, you know, the director, the filmmaker, is trying to set up this environment where um, it could be any suburb, suburban town, right? Um, although, if you know <laughs> that it was filmed in Michigan, you know that it's, like, in Michigan outside of Detroit, uh, but they really 
there's only a few references to that. So, like, I think there's one reference to 8 Mile. Um, but otherwise, everything seems like it could be a pretty small suburb. So you could feel like you are there, right? It's your town, or you are familiar with this environment. Um, and the film also needs to get you to believe that the events could actually happen to you, right? To get your brain to be like, uh-oh, I am in... <laughs> I am in this game, in this situation. The way that horror movies are scary is, uh, or we can make them more scary, is something called vicarious experience. So Numenema says that humans are inherently social, right? So we we are connected to other people whether we want to be or not, <laughs> which means we have a tendency to share emotions with other people, so even the characters in a movie. So this effect actually goes both ways, right? So this is why watching a movie in theaters can be a more emotional experience than watching it at home. Because when you're in a social setting, reacting to a movie with other people, you're sharing that emotional experience with them, which can heighten your emotionality, right? So like maybe you're watching, maybe you're watching It Follows in theaters in 2014. <laughs> and at first you were like, this isn't that scary. But then the people around you are reacting to the movie and are are scared, you know, maybe as evidenced by gasping when they see the creature, um, or you can feel the person next to you tensing. Um, and your, your brain is picking up on these, um, st the stimuli in the environment and saying, uh-oh, everyone else around us is scared of this. We should be scared of this too. And you see how that ties into survival, right? Like if you're the rest of your people are reacting to something, it's probably a good idea for you to check it out <laughs> and be afraid. Um, and then on the other side is when we develop social connections to characters in the movie, then we begin to share their emotions with them. So in It Follows, when we see Jamie, you know, we build this connection to Jamie throughout the movie because we're following her experience, um, and we, we, we feel how emotional she is when she sees the creature right she's angry she's scared she's desperate we start to feel that alongside with her um, basically feeling like a copy of the emotional state of the person we're watching this is also called um you may also hear it called emotional contagion big thing when um i think it's paranormal activity came out and they would show the trailers the trailers for the movie had shots of the audience members watching the movie and like flipping out. So when you went to go see the movie, you were already like, oh, like you were already primed to flip out. And then being in the theater with other people spread this emotional contagion where you would flip out as well. Um, and in fact, people will say that, oh, well, I watched Paranormal Activity in theaters and I like lost my mind. I was so scared. And then I watched it at home later and it wasn't that big of a deal. And part of it was that this, this emotional like, experience you had in a social connect, social setting really elevated the, the experience beyond what's really happening on screen. Um, so recommendations from Nemenema about this part is that you really want the movie to engage a strong empathy towards the protagonist and the viewers must be emotionally attached to them experiencing to be on the same side of the protagonist so and I talked about this earlier right that in the movie there's really no judgment on like Jamie's decisions regarding if she's gonna have sex with someone or not and I don't know if that's intentional from the filmmaker um, but I think that this also helps for it to be more for you to build more empathy with Jamie so that you feel so attached to her journey is that uh, we're not being given messages that she's a bad person because she had sex or because she um, is considering having sex with someone to get the monster off of her back. Feel empathy for her plight and, and want her to survive to the end of the movie. So there's a couple more aspects to this movie that I'm going to save for a different episode just because we still have two more weeks of spooky content <laughs> where we'll be talking about horror stuff um but I thought that this was a good movie to use in conjunction with this article to kind of talk about how um even something that when you're looking at it on the screen is not a real world situation um or anything that you may have dealt with before it can still kind of hack these fear systems so that your fear response is still triggered um, and you still get that enjoyable enjoyable fear of watching a horror movie. Um, now, for those of you who have listened to this for 
45 minutes or whatever and are like, what is she talking about? Horror movies are not pleasurable. <laughs> it may be that you fall into the category of, of um, people who, who their emotional reaction to fear is not regulated as quickly, so it's not pleasant for you because you don't immediately get the relief or the, the free prefrontal cortex kicking in um, and saying, no, we're okay, we're safe. And, you know, I've noticed this is anecdotal, this is just my experience, but people who are like have high anxiety, um, they kind of are split. So some people with high anxiety really like to watch scary movies, um, and some people with high anxiety don't. And and I've noticed from the people who are high anxiety and like horror movies that they do watch it for that kind of like uh, survival, like learning, right? That it's like, well, I'm going to know <laughs> if a zombie apocalypse comes, I'm going to know how to handle it. You know, so there's one less thing I can be anxious about because I've learned from The Walking Dead or whatever how to fight zombies. And then the other side are people who they're already having this kind of because anxiety is sort of like a low level activation of the fear circuit, right? That's just kind of more present. And so for people who maybe that's always happening, um, and that's barely pleasant <laughs> because it's it's not a good feeling. Um, why would I want to elevate that to the to the more extreme level, right? So they're they're going to stay away from horror movies because they don't want to experience the extreme end um, of that emotional spectrum. Um, with all that being said, uh, this is a good place for me to wrap it up. I'm just going to end with one more recommendation to watch. It follows. It's really good. Um, it it was on Netflix for a while. It might still be there. Um, but definitely check it out, um, and if not, I do recommend at least watching the clips of the figure just so you get a better sense of, of, of what we're talking about in this episode. Um, and so yeah, I'm going to wrap it up here. A little sneak peek. The next two episodes um, are going to feature another special guest, um, and we're going to be talking about the Haunting series, The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, so any Mike Flanagan fans out there, um, don't worry, we're going to get to you soon. <laughs> um, so that's just a little teaser for you. Um, but and otherwise, thank you for listening. Um, and as always, we'll see you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.